You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When life gives us a financial windfall, first comes gratitude, then comes financial planning, because being empowered with our money is everything. To learn more, visit planefe.com slash hermoney and schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today. Rather than thinking about the job as sort of the central axis of your life around which the rest of your life orbits, if we can start with our vision of a life well-lived and then think about how our jobs or our career can support that vision, it can really let people off of the hook. Hi, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. So what is the first question that you ask someone new when you are, say, sipping a cocktail at a mutual friend's birthday party? As much as we try not to ask it, and I try really hard not to ask it, it's pretty much always, what do you do? I mean, in Europe, this might get you kicked right out of the party, but in the U.S., our lives are so intertwined with our work that sometimes it's hard to bring another question to mind as quickly when we meet a stranger. And that stranger's response, it can completely define the way we think about them and picture how they spend their days. There's also the concept of the so-called dream job. Many people are obsessed with finding it and holding on to it. Why? Because we think our lives will be complete once we land it. What are those jobs? Well, financial services company Remedy recently took a look at Google searches for dream jobs. Number one on the list is pilot, not my dream job, by the way, followed by writer, dancer, YouTuber, and entrepreneur. Interesting that these are creative careers, many of them, that don't necessarily equate to making a lot of money. Put a pin in that thought. We're going to come back to it. What's fascinating, I think, about all of this at this particular moment in time is that there seems to be a shift underway. We saw a dramatic change in our relationship with our jobs during the pandemic, how we felt about them, where we wanted to do them, how much we were willing to give up for them. Yet many of us still rely on them for our health care, our retirement matching dollars, even a good dose of our self-worth. You know where I stand on this. My work is a big part of who I feel I am. I admit that. But I'm also willing to admit that it might be a problem. And that's what we're going to unpack today. We're going to get some concrete suggestions for finding meaning in our lives outside of work. And we're going to do it with self-proclaimed recovering workist Simone Stoltzoff. He is the author of a new book called The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work, which recently came in at number 15 on the New York Times bestseller list. So congrats on that. He is also an independent journalist and a consultant. He works with leaders, including the Surgeon General of the United States and the Chief Talent Officer at Google on issues about how to make the workplace more human-centered. Simone, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jean. 
So your ears may have been buzzing because your book, your work, was a topic of conversation at my house this past weekend. My stepdaughter, Emily, is deep into it. She and her partner are fresh off a year as digital nomads where they kept their jobs but also saw the world. And she is a huge fan of your perspective. It's a very different world than the one that I grew up in and maybe even that you grew up in. You and I are both UPenn graduates, and I don't know that there is a more pre-professional place on the planet. I am a fan. It set me up for a life where I have been able to do what I want, but I think that there was an expectation that we would work to live rather than live to work. How are things shifting, and why are they shifting right now? It's a great question, and I think probably your stepdaughter and I share this ethos that we were raised on, which is being smack dab in the middle of the millennial generation. Many of us were told to follow our passions, to pursue that dream job. Steve Jobs made that iconic commencement speech where he said, the only way to do great work is to do what you love. And so if you haven't found what you love, keep searching, don't settle. And I think this was really in the culture as we grew up through the early aughts and the 2010s as entrepreneurship was really finding its form and we were turning CEOs into celebrities and plastering always do what you love on the walls of our co-working spaces. And it's really in, in the past few years that the tides have begun to turn. I think there's a few causes. One is the pandemic where People saw the risk of tethering their identity and their self-worth to a job that might not always be there. I think there's also something about being so proximate to, to death where people were really putting their lives into perspective and saying, on my deathbed, am I going to wonder whether I should have spent a few more hours at the office or whether I could have picked up my child from elementary school more days? People got a taste of what a less work-centric view looks like. And now we're starting to see the, the backlash to a lot of the whole hustle culture and girl bossing that was so prevalent a few years prior. You call yourself a recovering workist in the book. What does that mean? Workism is a term that was coined by a colleague of mine at The Atlantic named Derek Thompson. And it's pretty straightforward. The idea is a workist treats work similar to how a religious person might treat their faith. So looking to work not just for a paycheck, but for a purpose, a meaning, a means of self-actualization. And I argue in the book that this isn't necessarily a burden that our jobs are designed to bear. Certainly, many people learned this in the past few years. If you were relying on your job to be your primary source of community and the office to be the hub of that community, the nature of your relationship to work changed. If you were relying on work to be your primary identity and you lost your job, maybe in, by no fault of your own, you were left wondering what's left. But I think the third risk, and perhaps the most pernicious one, is the ways in which a work-centered life can crowd out other aspects of who we are. When we are giving all of our best time and our energy to our careers, it can crowd out and neglect the other identities and sources of meaning that we have within each of us. Certainly, we are all more than just workers. We are also neighbors and friends and siblings and parents and citizens. And if we don't also water those identities with our time and our attention, they can wither. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. In the book, you write that the concept of workism is uniquely American, and you contrast it with perspectives from a hundred workers from throughout the world. What is it about the U.S. in particular? Yeah, I think there's many different ways to slice it. If you start at our country's foundation, the Protestant work ethic and capitalism were really the two strands that entwined to form our country's DNA. But I think in the last few decades, there have been a number of different trends that have made workism or work centricity particularly prevalent. One is the decline of other sources of identity and meaning in people's lives. So in the 70s, the average American and the average German worked around the same number of hours each year. And today, the average American works about 30% more than the average German worker. And one of the main arguments I make in the book is that it's due to the decline of other sources of meaning and identity. Things like organized religion or neighborhood and community groups, these things that once provided purpose and identity and meaning for so many folks have deteriorated these institutions in the past three or four decades. And yet the need for belonging and community and purpose remains. And many Americans are turning to the place where they spend the majority of their time, which is the workplace. I'm listening to all of this and I see so much of myself and many of the members, I think, of my generation in your descriptions of people who do get their identity or a lot of their identity at work. As I mentioned, we were talking about this over dinner over the past weekend. And for me, it wasn't just being in the office, but it was the people that I commuted with on the train every day who became my good friends. And leaving jobs, which I did over time, was painful because of the loss of those people. I'm wondering, as we look at trying to figure out how to spend our lives, where is the line? Where does the good enough job begin and the dream job end? Is there a sweet spot? It's a great question, because if you look at just the title of the book, The Good Enough Job, you might think that it's this slacker manifesto, that it's this excuse to for us all to sit on our couches more. And yet I don't think that a life completely disengaged from work is very fulfilling either. We see this just on a personal level. The days in which you don't feel connected to your work or maybe you don't have enough to do tend to be the hardest days to get through when it feels like pulling teeth or you're just watching the clock tick. And so I think it's a balance. I think it's a risky proposition to treat work as the sole source of identity and meaning in your life. But I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to find a job that aligns with your interests or is a source of meaning. And so in terms of the framework of the good enough job, my favorite thing about it is that it's subjective. You get to choose what good enough means to you. Perhaps if you want to live in a city like New York City or San Francisco, 
you need a job that pays a certain salary or to someone else, a good enough job might be a job in a certain industry or with a certain job title. And a third person, it might be a job that lets them get off at 4 p.m. so that they can focus on their afternoon bike ride each day. But whatever your definition of good enough is, I hope people start to recognize when they find it. Because a lot of times, especially in the United States, the rule of thumb is just the desire for more, more, and more. I'm reminded of this quote from David Foster Wallace, who says that there's no such thing as not worshiping, but whatever you worship will eat you alive. Worship money, and you'll think that you'll never have enough. Worship beauty, and you'll believe that you're never beautiful enough. And I think the same is true with the endless pursuit of dream jobs. If you're always expecting your job to be a dream or to be perfect, it can create a lot of room for disappointment. It's interesting when we look at the Google searches for dream jobs and the creative fields that it tends to focus on, writer, dancer, YouTuber, entrepreneur, a lot of people would look at what you do every day and say, boy, you have a dream job. You have achieved it. And yet I suspect that you wouldn't necessarily define it that way. How do you define good enough for you and draw the sort of boundaries necessary to keep it in that space. Yeah, I define it as a job that lets you be the person that you want to be. I think the the definition is sufficiently vague and subjective, as I mentioned earlier. But the way that I think about it is, rather than thinking about the job as sort of the central axis of your life around which the rest of your life orbits, if we can start with our vision of a life well-lived, and then think about how our jobs or our career can support that vision, it can really let people off of the hook. I think one of the interesting things in my own life is I went from being a staff writer in newsrooms and after I worked as a, as a designer in a design agency to working for myself. And I thought that, you know, it was my boss or it was the company culture that was driving me to work all the time. And then I started working for myself and I learned that I was the worst manager that I've ever had. It was me that was compelling myself to open up the laptop on weekends or, or lash myself when I wasn't as productive as I thought that I should have been. And so, you know, less about your job is not very actionable advice. I think the thing that I've seen work the best for people, both for myself and many of the folks that I've interviewed, is to try to prioritize other things in your life that can be a source of meaning. So meaning can grow in proportion with the ways in which we invest in different sources of meaning with our attention. For example, our relationships or our local community, the recreational sports team that you play on or the hobby or interest that you just do for yourself. It might sound simplistic, but if we want to derive meaning from things other than work, we have to do things other than work. And I think it starts first and foremost with carving out space in your weeks, in your days, in your life where you're not constantly multitasking or reaching for the office in your pocket and being present with what other aspects of your life are important. Yeah, absolutely. I think that sounds like a very good place to start. I want to dig into some generational differences because I think that there's a lot of new things that we can learn from Gen Z. And I suspect that baby boomers, many of whom are looking toward retirement and are scared to death that they're going to lose some sense of meaning when they leave their jobs, have a lot to learn from you. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. 
Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. We save and invest for our financial futures because we know that even though the future may be uncertain, planning is everything. Sometimes in life, we enjoy financial windfalls, too. We may gain an inheritance, liquidate a business, or receive a monetary gift or a settlement. Even in these days of more mega-million jackpots than ever, we may win the lottery. When this happens, we all want to make the most out of every dollar we've been given. And we can. Learn more at planefe.com slash hermoney and schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today. I'm back with Simone Stoltzoff, author of The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. Let's talk a little bit about generational trends. I think millennials get a bad and undeserved rap for being lazy. When we talk about Gen Z, we keep hearing about quiet quitting and anti-hustle culture. Where do you find the generational differences actually lying? And what do you think we should be taking from each generation? That's a great question. I'm reminded of the quote that my grandfather was in the military so my father could be an engineer so that I could be a poet. And it's particularly germane to my personal life because I was a poetry major in college. And I think for many of people in my generation, They really internalize this belief that our job can deliver transcendence or that our jobs are the means of self-actualization in our life. And then whether it was an economic downturn or recession or a global pandemic, a lot of these dreams or these expectations that we placed on our jobs have become falsified. But I think there are two demographics of readers that the book seems to be resonating with that has really surprised me. The first is recent retirees. One of the arguments that I make in the book is about the value of diversifying your identity. Much as an investor benefits from diversifying the sources of their investment, we too benefit from diversifying the different sources of meaning in our life. And I think for recent retirees who hadn't taken the time to cultivate other identities, other sources of meaning, can feel hung out to dry, to feel directionless or rudderless when they no longer have the job as sort of the organizing principle of their life. And then the second generational demographic that seems to be resonating are recent college grads which I think are trying to wrestle this moment of the media and a lot of their peers pushing narratives around quiet quitting and not overly investing in work. And yet I don't think that end of this spectrum, the sort of nihilist point of view of of work being a necessary evil is a recipe for fulfillment either. I think maybe some of these anti-capitalist memes or things like quiet quitting are actually red herrings. The truth is we live in a material world and you can be anti-work, but you still will have to pay rent. And so I think the balance we have to strike is holding sort of what the market values in one hand and holding what we ourselves value in the other hand and trying to find a career or work that sits at their intersection. Because if we just index too far on the market side, then you can find yourself in a position where you are working your way up a a ladder that you don't actually want to be on. But if you find yourself just valuing what you care about as opposed to what the world or what the market cares about, then you can find yourself, for example, pursuing art, but being so preoccupied with how you're going to pay rent that you can't actually focus on the art that you want to create or taking on all of this debt 
to pursue a graduate degree that might not lead to stable job prospects on the other side. And so I think this is something that every generation is sort of trying to figure out in their own way, but particularly younger folks, people of my generation and even younger, are trying to reconcile these sort of idealistic dreams and the rhetoric that they've been told about what a job can be with the reality of living in a material world and trying to find a livelihood in addition to a life. Let's stick with that thought for just a second because we are a financial show. These are stressful financial times. My daughter, who lives in New York City with two roommates, got notification that her rent on the same apartment would be going up roughly 12% next year. And their raises are not keeping pace with that sort of an increase. It's stressful. It's stressful for many people every time you go to the grocery store. So how do you structure your life in such a way where you focus enough on bringing in the money that you need while maintaining this other channel of purpose on the other side? I mean, do you have a recipe for doing this well? Mm, Not a step-by-step recipe. That would be helpful. (laughs) Maybe some mindset shifts that might be able to help. I mean, one of the things I advocate for in the book is a more transactional approach to work, which might sound crass, especially because we've been told that jobs are meant to be callings or vocations or passions or labors of love. Thinking about a job as a transaction may seem unromantic, but the truth is, at the end of the day, a job is first and foremost an economic contract. It's an exchange of your time and your labor for a paycheck. Certainly, it can be much more than that. It can be a calling. It can be a source of community, et cetera. But thinking about it first and foremost as an economic contract, I think, can be liberating, both for employers and for employees. For employers, it can allow them to, say, set clear expectations about what good work looks like, thinking about what is their end of the bargain. And for employees, it can allow them to, for example, talk about money without thinking that any talk of compensation somehow undermines the company's best interests. Or it can allow them to think about their job as part of, but not the entirety of their life. That being said, I don't have any delusions that making money is important, and especially in these tightening economic markets and this time when we're seeing layoffs all around us, thinking about the material benefits that we get from W-2 employment is very important. And I think that's sort of what kind of calculus you'll have to make if you want to live in a place like New York City. Your good enough job is going to have to pay enough to pay New York City rent. All that said, I think Part of the reason our relationship to work is so fraught in the United States is because the consequences of losing work are so dire. When, for example, our health care is tied to our employment status, or if you're an immigrant, your ability to stay in this country is often tied to your employment status. And so I think there are things that we can do at both the policy level and the firm level to protect workers' lives outside of the office a little bit more. At the policy level, we can decouple some of our basic human needs from our employment status. And I think really enlightened and progressive firms are seeing that when they are able to create boundaries 
boundaries on behalf of their workers to, for example, take their full vacation and to have norms around when they're expected to be on and offline, it can lead to better work. We're seeing these four-day workweek experiments in countries and at companies around the world, and they're proving that there isn't always a direct relationship between the number of hours we spend working and the quality of work that we produce. And so that's the way in which I'm, I'm hopeful and maybe one of the silver linings that's coming from this shift towards remote and hybrid work is we can stop using these false proxies like the number of hours you spend in your office chair or some of these standards that are really holdovers from a more industrial age of work and let the quality of work speak for itself and hopefully give employees a little bit more autonomy and trust to get their work done when and how they see fit. Many people in this country are always looking for the next job. If you were advising them on how to find employment that checks the kind of boxes that you're talking about, what would you tell them to look for in the, in the advertisement for the job? And what questions should they ask on the interview? Mm. I like this question. Well, first, before you look for any particular job, I would advise you to take a step back and try and come up with some criteria for what you care about yourself. Start with sort of your own personal values. For one person, they might really value a collaborative culture where people are working side by side and collaborating all day long, whereas someone else might value a, a deep work culture where workers are given a lot of time and space to do work on an individual level. The truth is it's it's different strokes for different folks. But what I'd advise is to try and get as proximate to the daily experience of doing the work as possible. Often in job interviews or when we're looking for different opportunities on Indeed or LinkedIn, you use these different signals that companies put out, like a best place to work list or the, the ratings on Glassdoor. But the truth is the things that are most likely to affect your experience are who you're working for, your direct relationship with your manager, your boss, who you're working with, who are the people that you're going to be collaborating with on a day-to-day basis, and what your daily tasks and responsibilities are actually going to look like. And so the questions that I would be asking in these sort of interviews are, what do people do on an average Tuesday at 3 p.m. <laughs> I get a snack. Exactly. <laughs> Great snacking culture. Are there ways that you might be able to shadow or talk to people that have had this role in the past? I come from a, a background in design where we take this approach called human-centered design or design thinking. And the whole idea is to try and learn from doing, learn from experiments. So for example, you know, I'm sure you and I both get lots of people reaching out to us who want to break into journalism or want to write a book. And the thing that I always advise people is to just start writing and see if you actually like the experience of, of writing. Start pitching articles to editors and seeing if you like that as a mode to be spending your days in, especially when we have endless optionality, when another job listing is just a swipe away. It's hard to create constraints for yourself. And so I would advise people to start with their values, try and get experience looking at what the actual 
actual day-to-day will be like in a job and figure out who you're going to be working most closely with. Because those are the things that tend to impact your experience on the job more than the prestige of the company or the job title or some of these other things that we think might matter. Fantastic advice. I am not at all surprised that the book is resonating as much as it is, but having this conversation, I understand it even more. So thank you for sharing yourself with us and thank you for sharing your ideas. Where can our listeners find more about you? They can go to thegoodenoughjob.com. That's all the information you need about the book and also my socials, et cetera. And Jean, thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, you guys, it's Jean. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love because I love it. Freakonomics Radio. Every week, host and best-selling author Stephen Dubner dives into the hidden side of business and economics and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, even Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics like whether AI has a sense of humor and whether two CEOs are better than one. If you are curious like me and just looking to better understand the world around you, you will find it on Freakonomics Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia, is with us today. Hey, Julia. Hello. How are you doing? I am doing fine. How are you? Doing fine. Ready to dive in. Should we kick it to mailbags? Kick it. Our first question today comes to us from Kristen. She writes, Hi, Jean. You and your team are a wealth of knowledge and have helped me significantly improve my financial portfolio and knowledge since I started listening to your podcast, What Should I Do to Protect Myself If My Employer's Server Has Been Hacked? I froze my credit during finance fix, and I've reset my passwords. My CPA had me reset my ID.me password and request a PIN to prevent anyone pretending to be me from filing a tax return. Is there anything else you recommend? Thank you. Kristen, I think that you have checked all the boxes. As you know, because you went through the Finance Fix program, which for anybody listening who is not familiar with is our eight-week course that's devoted to getting your money in line, saving more, spending less, paying down debt if you have high interest rate debt. During Finance Fix, we encourage you to freeze your credit. And we encourage you to freeze your credit because when your credit is frozen, nobody, not even you, has the ability to apply for credit in your name. Because in order to grant you credit, an underwriter, whether it's a credit card company or a mortgage lender, they need to be able to look at your credit. And the credit bureaus are not going to release it to them because it's frozen. They're also not going to release it to you, by the way, so that if you want to apply for some sort of alone, you're going to have to lift the freeze on your credit for a week or so until that application has time to pass through the channels. But that's a pretty small detail. And as I found, not really much of a hitch. So if you haven't frozen your credit, freeze your credit. Very easy to do that. You go to each of the three credit bureaus, Experian, 
Equifax, and TransUnion. They all have easy-to-navigate menus on their websites where you can find the button and sign up for a credit freeze. It's free, and I think it's something that absolutely everyone should do. But once you've done it, it's your job to just continue to remain vigilant. And vigilance in this case is just taking a look at your credit every few months or so to make sure that you don't see anything cropping up there that is unusual or that doesn't belong to you. Other than that, I think you are doing just fine. Mom, this may be a silly question, but should I know what ID.me is? ID.me, and it's not a silly question, Julia. I think a lot of people haven't heard of it. It is a company, for lack of a better word, a service that provides secure identity proofing and authentication for government and businesses across a variety of sectors. It's a partner of the VA, the Veterans Administration. It's one of only four single sign-on providers that meet the government's rigorous requirement for online identity proofing and authentication, and it's free. So it's just another way for you to protect your identity The process of getting enrolled and reviewing your documents takes a couple of days. Personally, I haven't done it, and I think that freezing your credit is probably the best first step for everyone. Got it. All right. Next question? Sure. Our next question comes from Catherine. She writes, Hello. I have a question regarding paying off a home loan early. My husband and I were on track to pay off our loan by the time he retires at 67, about eight and a half years from now. He is the primary breadwinner. About a year and a half ago, we met with a fee-only financial planner who had us stop putting the extra money towards the mortgage and instead direct it into a brokerage account. This changed our mortgage payoff to 2050 when my husband will be 86 and I will be 78. We have never felt good about this and are now thinking about going back to trying to pay off the mortgage by the time he retires. We currently have about $600,000 in equity. I'm curious to know if you think we should focus on paying off the home or is the taxable brokerage account a better idea? We have other investments in addition to this and max out all our IRAs every year. Thank you in advance. So Catherine, let me give you both sides of the argument here. I'll tell you why your financial planner had you stop putting the extra money toward the mortgage and direct it into a brokerage account. The financial advisor did it because when they looked at the interest rate on your mortgage, which I assume has been in place for a while, it's probably in the 3% range, maybe the 3 to 4% percent range. When we look at a debt, the interest rate on that debt is equivalent to the return on our money. So your financial advisor looked at these extra payments and saw you getting a three to four percent return on that money and thought, well, if you put the money in the market and the market has returns as it has done historically over time, it's going to be a better bet for you to put the money in the brokerage firm and earn 8% returns 
Now, granted, that's before taxes, but so is the 3 to 4%. In any case, I think you get the idea. The financial advisor was saying, you'll do better. You'll get a better return by using the money as some form of investment. That said, clearly paying off the mortgage before you retire is going to give you some sort of emotional freedom. It's going to enable you to go into retirement feeling less burdened by this debt that's potentially still going to be with you. That's why I am not going into retirement with a mortgage. It's not for financial reasons. It's for emotional reasons. To me, it feels safer and more secure to go into retirement when I know that my income will drop without having to worry that I still owe money on a home. And so I really do see both sides of the coin. I see the financial side and I see the emotional side. And I would say to you that as long as you have enough money in your retirement accounts, and it sounds like you potentially do because you're maxing out, I would probably reverse course and pay off this mortgage. That's my preference. I know that other people will disagree with me, but I have held fast to this line for many years, and I'm going to stick with it today. Make sense, Jules? Makes total sense. Thanks for clarifying. If you've got any other money-related questions, Julia and I would love to hear from you. Just send them our way by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. We are going to take a quick break. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the host of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser-known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. And we're back with your money tip of the week. If you're considering buying an electric car, and I have been, by the way, 2023 might just be the year to do it, especially if the price of an electric car has been what's holding you back. In general, you can get a tax credit of up to $7,500 off your purchase of an electric car. The other great thing, every year there seem to be new options in the electric car market to fit the features and the styles that suit your taste. 
Tax credit laws can always change, however, so if you're on the fence about purchasing one, you might want to make the decision sooner rather than later. You can get more details on which cars qualify at hermoney.com. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. This show is produced by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.